Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 233 mass shootings in the U.S. already this year, and it's only June 2nd. The lead starts right now. Tulsa, Oklahoma, becomes one of the latest scenes of tragedy. Four people killed by a gunman targeting his doctor and anyone who got in his way. His weapon, another AR-15-style rifle, bought the same day as the deadly rampage. Also today, more baby formula on the way to the U.S., but with even more product reportedly out of stock, where are these new deliveries going? And... The folks who sent messages to the White House during the January 6th attack. What many Republicans tell CNN exclusively now about their pleas to Donald Trump to stop the insurrection, the violence. Some of them now pretend publicly that Trump did not incite. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead, the epidemic of gun violence in America. In just a few hours, President Biden will address the nation about the spate of recent mass shootings and new gun laws he wants to see Congress pass to stop it. The most recent of these horrific attacks in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where police today laid out a timeline of last night's rampage at the St. Francis Hospital Complex. They say The gunman bought an AR-15-style rifle yesterday afternoon and opened fire in his surgeon's office just a few hours later, killing his surgeon, another doctor, the receptionist, and a patient. There are also major new developments today in Uvalde, Texas, where the mayor now says a negotiator had been trying to reach the shooter inside Robb Elementary School, but the shooter did not respond. It is unclear why officials were trying to negotiate with an active shooter, which goes against protocols. And in Buffalo, New York, the 18-year-old man who allegedly went on a racist rampage in that supermarket, killing 10 people mid-May, just appeared in court and pleaded not guilty. These are just three of the 233 mass shootings in the United States this year. 233, this is June 2nd, we're only at the 153rd day of the year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archives, which defines a mass shooting as four or more victims in a single incident. 20 of those attacks, 20 of the 233, have happened after the Uvalde mass shooting last Tuesday. CNN reporters are on the ground in all of these cities covering the latest developments. We're going to start with CNN's Gary Tuckman, who's outside the scene of yesterday's shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Gary, police say they found a letter on the gunman's body detailing his motive. What did it say? Well, Jake, the letter provides solid proof, the police say, as to what his motivation was. And in a nutshell, and it's a very depressing and sad and vulgar nutshell, but basically he bought one weapon this past Sunday, one weapon yesterday, and then murdered four people because he wasn't content with his medical care. The letter was found on his body after he committed suicide. Police are not releasing the exact contents of the letter, but they do tell us that he says in the letter that he blamed his back surgeon for his ongoing pain. One important thing to tell you is that, especially in light of what happened in Texas last week, 
is that on this medical campus, when they got the 911 calls, the police were on the scene inside the doctor's office building within three minutes. Officers entered the building on the first floor and made their way to the second floor based on the information they received. While on the second floor of the vast building, officers began yelling, Tulsa police. This is something that we trained to do. As officers were calling out Tulsa police and advancing towards a suspect location, they heard a gunshot. We believe that was the final gunshot with the suspect taking his own life. The gunshot was at 4.58 p.m., approximately 39 seconds after the first officers entered the building. I asked that chief, in his expert opinion, if his people, if his men and women did not get in that building as quickly as they did, would that man have continued firing at innocent victims? And he told me this quote, we have no reason to believe he was going to stop. Jake. Mm. Gary, what do we know about the four victims? Okay, so one of the victims was the back surgeon, was Dr. Preston Phillips, very respected here at the St. Francis Hospital System, the largest hospital system in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Also, Dr. Stephanie Hoosen, a doctor of osteopathic medicine, also very well respected here. And then Amanda Glenn, she was the receptionist and also a supervisor in the doctor's office. And then a patient, William Love. That patient was critically hurt. He was treated in this hospital and he died shortly after. One more thing I wanna add, Jake, when police got into the office and saw the body of the murderer lying there, just a couple of feet away under a desk, they saw another body, but this was a woman who survived. She hid and she made it out safely. Jake. All right, Gary Tuckman in Tulsa, Oklahoma for us. Thank you so much. South now to Uvalde, Texas, where new questions are being raised about the 911 calls made during the school shooting and who was actually being relayed the information from those trapped inside the classroom. CNN's Ed Lavendera is on the ground in Uvalde and he is trying to get answers. As families mourn, the investigation continues into the delayed response to the mass shooting in Uvalde. I want to know specifically who was receiving the 911 calls. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez is raising questions. He says he was told by the Commission on State Emergency Communications that 911 calls were directed to the city police and it's unclear if that crucial information was relayed to the school district's police chief who was the incident commander. Uvalde PD was the one receiving the 911 calls for 45 minutes while officers were sitting in a hallway for 19, for 19 officers were sitting in a hallway for 45 minutes. We don't know if it was being communicated to those people or not. The Uvalde Police Department and the Commission on Emergency Communications have not yet responded to CNN's request for comment. District Attorney Christina Mitchell Busby wouldn't speak to CNN this morning. She was escorted to her car by security. There's a lot of information that needs to come out. As we get a look at the first warrants submitted in the hours after the shooting, granting permission to search the suspect's cell phone, car, and home, where police found more cartridges, high-capacity magazines, and a laptop. This as new details emerge about a fourth-grade teacher at Robb Elementary who was on the phone with her husband, an officer with the school district's police department, before she died. The New York Times is reporting that Eva Mireles was in her classroom with the shooter, speaking to her husband as he was forced to wait outside the building with his unit. 
She's in the classroom and he's outside. It's terrifying. Uvalde County Judge Bill Mitchell, who spoke with deputies, tells the paper. Mitchell told the Times he doesn't know exactly what was said or if her husband shared any details about the call to his supervisor in charge of the scene. But as the communication and decision making by police is called into question, this conversation suggests at least one person had access to real-time information from an adult in the classroom. It took responders 80 minutes to enter the classroom from the time they received the first call. Uvalde's mayor is also frustrated by the police response. Don McLaughlin says he rushed to the staging site the day of the shooting and was placed in a room with someone he referred to as a negotiator, who he says tried to call the gunman but did not get through. I wasn't there at the initial, but at the moment he went in that classroom, they were trying to get numbers and call. They tried his every, every number they could find. McLaughlin does not believe the negotiator was aware of any 911 phone calls from inside the classroom. While I was there, you know, I did not hear the 911 calls. I can assure you, had we have been aware of it, or I would have been aware of it, I would have been screaming. And Jake, the Texas Department of Public Safety says it is no longer answering questions about this investigation, instead directing all questions to the local prosecutors here in Uvalde. But as you saw in our story there, they're not talking either. Uh, Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez says he's expecting or hoping to get a updated report from Texas State investigators on Friday, but it's absolutely not clear if that's going to come through. In fact, he says he's starting to believe that they're trying to delay the uh, information being released in hopes that all of the attention around this case will die down. Jake? Yeah. Erroneous information from police and now a stonewall. Ed Levandera in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you so much. And in Buffalo today, a court hearing just wrapped up for the 18-year-old accused of killing 18, I'm sorry, 10 people at a grocery store in a racially motivated attack. Seen as Miguel Marquez is live outside the courthouse. Miguel, tell us about these charges and the suspect's plea today. Yeah, his lawyer on his behalf pleading not guilty to all these charges, extremely serious charges that he is facing. Everything from domestic terrorism to murder, hate crimes, and a weapons charge as well. Uh, in all 25 charges, the most serious of them that domestic char uh, de terrorist charge charged as a hate crime, motivated by hate. 10 first-degree murder charges, 10 second-degree murder charges, also as hate crimes, three attempted murder charges as hate crimes, and one weapons charge. 13 victims in all, 11 of them were African Americans. The 10 who died were all black as well. The mayor here in Buffalo speaking, you know, this was an 18-year-old here. There was a teenager in Texas that, that uh, carried out, uh, is suspected of carrying out that attack there. The mayor here talking about what needs to happen to stop this violence. We will not be silent on this issue. We must demand as a country, every state in this nation, that federal lawmakers who have been resistant to doing something about sensible gun reform, that they change that stance and we take action that will prevent these kinds of mass shootings and this kind of mass murder from continuing to happen. 
Now, while the district attorney here in Erie County was not speaking to the evidence, uh, officials along the way have, and they say that they have no doubt that this uh, heinous, heinous crime was uh, racially motivated. The, uh, the su suspect releasing a 180-page racist screed prior to the shooting, uh, proclaiming that he was this white supremacist and that he was an anti-Semite, also getting at this notion of replacement theory, this idea that white Americans are being replaced by minorities, uh, something that used to live in the dark edges of our society and culture and online and now is uh, mainstream in many parts of America. Uh, this is also somebody they say who researched where he was going to attack, looking at the zip code where that top supermarket was, 14208, and deciding that that was the place that had the highest percentage of African Americans, that, and that's where he would go. They also believe that he had more weapons on him and, ex and expected that he would survive the shooting at the supermarket and move on to another location to kill more black people. Jake? Miguel Marquez in Buffalo, New York for us. Thank you so much. As if record gas prices were not bad enough, now new warnings that the U.S. could be headed for an energy crisis that rivals the one in the 1970s. And only on CNN, what Republicans say now about their previous pleas begging Trump to stop the violence on January 6th. Stay with us. In our money lead today, the world could be barreling toward an energy crisis even worse than the one in the 1970s, according to current and former energy officials. A crisis of not just petroleum, but also natural gas and even electricity, partly fueled by Putin's war, as well as years of underinvestment in the energy sector. And Americans are feeling it at the pump with another record-breaking national high today at $4.72 a gallon, according to AAA. If viewers think that almost every day I'm telling you about a new record high for gas prices, your ears are not deceiving you. I am. Joining us now, CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon. Rahel, OPEC has agreed to release more oil than expected over the next two months. How much will that help? Well, I think, look, if the price of oil right now is any indication, probably not much. Brent, which is the global benchmark for oil, is trading pretty much at the highs of today. It's at $118 per barrel. It's up about 1.7%. So this indication from investors is that they don't think that this announcement today will add much to really lower prices at the pump for us consumers. So this announcement from OPEC Plus essentially adding 648,000 barrels per day of oil, uh, that's about 200,000 more than was scheduled. The issue, however, is that according to Reuters, globally we're losing about a million barrels of oil because of the Russian sanctions. So you can sort of understand the shortfall there. A lot of skepticism among energy analysts and folks who watch the space very closely. Uh, Rad Al-Qadari of the Eurasia Group telling me, he put it this way, Jake, at a time when you need immediate measures with the market looking for significant respite, this OPEC agreement delivered almost the opposite. There was the promise of something significant, but when it was actually reached, it was something far more mundane. Jake? Rahel, what, what is the shift from Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia mean for the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, massive oil producer. Do you think the U.S., the Biden administration, is going to have to go kiss the ring of Saudi leader Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, despite his role in the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi? Listen, I mean, the relationship between the two countries has been 
tense, to say the least, for some of the reasons you've cited, Jake. Uh, we've just got some new reporting, actually, from CNN, including from uh, CNN's MJ Lee, citing a senior White House official saying that the U.S. sees Saudi Arabia as an important strategic partner, uh, adding that uh, the administration continues, however, to have concerns about Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Uh, that said, Biden, we are also hearing, Jake, that Biden may be eyeing a visit to the country to meet with MBS uh, within the next few weeks. So uh, it has been a tense relationship in the years past. Remains to be seen if that relationship will be warming uh, in the years to come. All right, Rahel Solomon, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, good to have you at CNN. The health lead now. Today, the FDA says new shipments of Nestle baby formula will be available in the United States sometime this month. Germany is sending enough supply to fill more than 6 million 8-ounce bottles. That's on top of the shipments on the way from the UK and from Australia. But where is all this formula going? What states is it going to? What stores? The Biden administration has launched a new website, whitehouse.gov formula, to track its efforts to answer those questions. CNN's Adrian Broadus has been around Chicago today searching for stores that do and do not have this formula. Adrian, what did you find? Well, Jake, like many parents who have struggled to find formula on store shelves, we ran into the same problem. But we did find some formula here at this store on the city's south side. It's Similac Advance and also Good Start Gentle Nutrition by Gerber. Turns out this is a neighborhood grocery store in the Beverly neighborhood. The owner says they've been around for 58 years, and at one point they stopped carrying baby formula until recently after hearing from his customers. Listen in. Uh, there were some customers asking about it, and we heard that there was a shortage and there was a need, so we checked their warehouse, and they did have some. So my brother-in-law, Mike, said, hey, let's bring some in, and we did. I'm just happy that we're able to help the mother, young mothers in our neighborhood, and, and uh, whatever we can do, we, we're, we're, glad, we're glad to do it. That's one person doing his part. However, for families whose babies depend on, let's say, specialty formula, this is not going to help them. For those children, for example, like a woman I talked to, she says her daughter has a rare genetic disorder, and her daughter cannot tolerate the protein in the cow's milk, so she has to have specialty formula. You may remember when the Biden administration uh, talked about those imports of formula coming from overseas. That first shipment was expected to be delivered to hospitals and pharmacies where families needed a prescription for that specialty type formula, Jake. Adrian, what do we know about federal efforts to improve the, the stock rates nationwide? Have these shipments from other countries made a dent? So that's the thing. Instead of getting better, it's slightly worse, especially if you examine product availability when it comes to the formula. So, for example, one estimate from Data Assembly shared with CNN shows that during the week of May 22nd, about 74 percent of formula was out of stock. And for comparison, if you look at this year compared to the same time last year, the number was at 6 percent. Jake. All right. Adrian brought us in Chicago. Thank you so much. Today, Ukraine's president said about 20 percent of his country is currently under Russian control. 20 percent. Next, CNN returns to southern Ukraine to see what life is like there as the Russians fight for territory. Next. Our world lead today as the war rages in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine's first lady, Olena Zelenska, has a message 
for Russia. Take a listen. We are not prepared to concede our freedom, our territory. One cannot lose part of one's territory and relax, unfortunately. They will not seize until they destroy us completely. And as Russian troops retreat or leave some Ukrainian towns, CNN's Melissa Bell finds displaced Ukrainians that would do anything to get back home but find themselves stuck in a sea of despair and red tape. Alive and safe, but stuck in Zaporizhia. Some of the families that fled the Russian bombings of southern Ukraine. Others have just found themselves on the wrong side of a line that has hardened. Some of these families, now living in their cars, have been here for weeks. Olena Babak came from the Black Sea town of Skadovsk to buy medicine for her elderly parents. She's now living with others in the open air. Look, she says, he's just had surgery. My husband's without a leg. This grandmother is recovering from a stroke. I can hardly sit, she says. My legs are swollen. Can I just get back to her son, or is this some kind of cruel joke? Please, just let me die in her son, at home. Some of the families bringing their anger to Zaporizhia's regional administrative building. What's the problem? Why? Like Alexei Ismailov, who fled Mariupol with his wife, but has had no contact with the rest of his family for three months. They the still stay in Mariupol. And during uh, three months, I don't have any contact. What happened with my father, with my sister, I like to come back and help. I, I like bring them to Ukrainian. Marina Notanova, who's in charge of social services for the greater Zaporizhia region, says humanitarian aid has been hard to bring because her teams to the south of the city are now without communications. She tells us that it will also be necessary to tell those trying to return of the dangers they face. It's very dangerous there, she says, so this will be discussed with them at this new filtration camp. To find out why they want to go, and whether they understand the risks. She says that beyond the water already being provided here, there will soon be a medical center, showers and a room for mothers and children. For now, these families wait, just hungry to get home. Just some of those civilians in Zaporizhia, Jake, that are stuck uh, because of that hardening line. It isn't simply, and this is the big concern for Ukraine, that it continues to push forward, but that it is actually hardened with people being stuck on either side of it. And that is 20 percent of Ukraine now in Russian hands. Extremely alarming from the Ukrainian point of view with that thousand kilometer line, as President Zelensky put it today, running from Kharkiv down to Mykolaiv. Uh, what they are trying to do tonight, the Ukrainian armed forces, to prevent that line from standing, even as it continues to push forward in the north, for instance, in Severodonetsk, uh, where most of the city has now fallen to Russians, even as Russian armed forces have concentrated their efforts there, a counteroffensive drone in Kherson to try and break that line, get some of those Ukrainian cities back and end this war, at least what Ukraine is hoping tonight, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Odessa, thank you so much. Coming up next to CNN Exclusive, what some Republicans say now about the text messages they sent on January 6th, in which they begged Donald Trump 
to tell the crowd to stop the violence. Stay with us. In our Politics Lead Now, a CNN exclusive, we are learning more about the key Trump allies who were begging the former president to stop Capitol Hill rioters on January 6th. Let's get right to CNN special correspondent Jamie Gingell. And Jamie, text messages sent to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows have turned out to be a treasure trove for the House Committee investigating the deadly insurrection. What did you find when you re-examined all these messages that you've been bringing us these last few weeks? So we went back to see, did we miss anything? And the really shocking part was to just look at January 6th. So for the first time, we are releasing, you can go on CNN.com and see text messages minute by minute uh, from late the night of the 5th through January 6th. And what you see is in real time, the drama, the fear, and you see these Trump allies, former White House officials, Republican members of Congress, pleading with Mark Meadows to get the president to do something. They clearly believe he can make it stop. That's the critical point. So let's just go through. These are just a couple of what you'll see. From Republican Congressman Jeff Duncan at 3.04 p.m., POTUS needs to calm this. You can read it down. From former Trump HHS Secretary Tom Price at 3.13 p.m., POTUS should go on air and defuse this. Extremely important. From North Carolina conservation lobbyist Tom Kors, he's an Old Meadows associate at 3.42 p.m. Please have POTUS call this off at the Capitol. Urge rioters to disperse, I pray to you. We also went and reached out, and I spoke to more than a dozen of the people who wrote these text messages. Most of them wanted to talk on background because they were concerned about their jobs. They're afraid Donald Trump might get reelected Or as one said to me, I just don't want to be the target of the misery of this. Uh, But what's most notable is... Bill profiles and courage there. It's hard. It's hard. Um, 17 months later, they all stand by their texts. And each said that they believed if Trump had immediately spoken out, he could have stopped the attack. Which would have saved lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So here is one. Quote, two hours is just inexcusable when the safety of the federal government is in question. You have the duty immediately to speak out. And Trump was derelict in that duty. That is a Meadows associate. Second, I think he knew he could stop it, which is why he remained silent. Yeah. And that is a very senior Republican, former uh, White House official. And I just want to add this one. This was from someone who served in the White House Quote, he failed at being president. So you're also learning new details about who's going to be among the first witnesses in the public hearings of the January 6th uh, Select Committee, which are set to begin one week from today. What can you share about that? So what we know is we're hearing a lot about Team Pence, not Mike Pence. We don't think he's going to testify, but we understand the committee has reached out to Pence's former chief Counsel Greg Jacob, that he has been told that they want him to testify. Former federal judge Michael Ludig uh, has also been asked. And former Pence chief of staff Mark Short, who was with Pence that whole day, he is expected to be called to testify. Also, we're hearing, and I don't think this will be a surprise, that 
to expect a panel of former justice officials. So this would be former acting attorney general Jeff Rosen, former acting deputy attorney general Richard Donahue. All right. Um, And we're also learning that former attorney general Bill Barr has met with the January 6th committee. What is the committee looking to learn from him? He was not attorney general on January 6th, I don't believe. Correct. But he's there at a critical time. So remember from Watergate, what did the president know and when did he know it? On December 1st, then attorney general Bill Barr said to the president, said to the public, there is no widespread election fraud. That is key to the committee because they are going to lay out the case that Trump continued down this path, having been told there was no widespread election fraud, having been warned that what he was doing could lead to violence and that it holds him responsible. So Barr is a key witness. All right. Interesting. Jamie Gangel, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's discuss all of this with CNN contributor John Dean, who, of course, is also the former White House counsel for President Nixon. Uh, John, so you know a thing or two about public testimony, uh, about the actions of a president. What are you hoping to learn from the January 6th House Select Committee when those hearings start in one week? Well, I'm certainly liking like the witnesses they've lined up. I think they can draw the big picture. They'll be able to describe the, the schemes that were being cooked up, how they tried to, uh, some reject them. And uh, I think it'll be an impressive overview, if you will. And that's what the Senate Watergate Committee did not do. They started at the bottom and almost lost the networks. Uh, they, told, they, were, they said this was so boring, we can't do this uh, in many more days. So I think they, they've learned that lesson. They're going to attract attention. They're going to explain the big picture. And I think it's going to uh, uh, be a, a good attraction. Watergate had the Nixon tapes. This has the Mark Meadows text messages. Those have played a central role in learning what those around Trump were saying and doing as the insurrectionists were breaking into the Capitol building. How significant do you think these text messages are going to be during the hearings? Well, I disagree with you, Jake. They didn't have the tapes until late, and they only got a few of my conversations along the way that they could make probable cause on. I think this, this array of messages, uh, contemporaneous, are much more telling than the tapes. The tapes were, uh, Nixon kept himself highly isolated uh, and really didn't have wide exchanges. This, this shows his frame of mind and helps to cast where he was and what he was doing and why he was doing it. And I think with a few other witnesses, we're going to see a president that was reveling in this disorder and enjoying it. Yeah. You played such a pivotal role in Watergate, first participating in the cover-up, then exposing it to the world. It's been 50 years this month since that break-in kicked off an infamous chapter in American history. You're telling new details about those events in a CNN original series called Watergate, Blueprint for a Scandal. Let's show our audience a clip. John Dean is part of this discussion because he's already aware of investigations associated with the political enemies project. It was always understood that Liddy's main job would be spying on Nixon's political opponents. And Liddy has a very dangerous understanding of power. Some of the people they had hired at Creep 
were of a mindset, whatever he asked them to do, they were going to do it. They went beyond what he could have thought of himself sometimes. Six months before the Watergate break-in, I got a call to come to John Mitchell's office, and Lydia is setting up an easel, and I can see he's got big charts. It was a sales pitch. Liddy is tasked with coming up with a plan. Looks great. Can't wait to watch it. What, what do you want audiences to take away from the series? Well, I think it's, I think the core story needed to be retold by people who really know that story and can speak with authority about it. Uh, I had originally pitched telling untold stories, but that I think is not what is needed right now, uh, particularly with the forthcoming hearings for uh, January 6th. We, we really need to understand what was one event, what was the other event, and how do they kind of play off each other? A president abusing power versus a president who trying to stay in power. Uh, we're going to see that Nixon, in a sense, uh, was nowhere close to Trump when you watch these two uh, realities unfold in the coming weeks. The series talks about the fact that during Watergate, the system worked. Nixon's abuse of power was ultimately stopped. He, he resigned. He was kind of told by Republicans that he needed to resign, that he wouldn't necessarily survive an impeachment. Are you optimistic that abuse of power can still be stopped today? Do you have faith that the system is still working in this modern era with this Republican Party and the conservative media network that now exists? Jake, I wish I could tell you I have no concerns. I have great concerns. And that's why I think these hearings are so important. I, I think I, there is about 30 to 35 percent of the population that is very hardcore authoritarian. And they would like to see the government run a little differently. And I think they need to be uh, visited versus the great majority of people who want our democracy to survive. And I hope that threat comes to light uh, in these hearings and using something like this documentary to show how it did work. All right, John Dean, always good to have you. Thanks so much. Be sure to tune into the all-new CNN original series, Watergate Blueprint for a Scandal, which premieres Sunday night at 9 Eastern and Pacific, only on CNN. Coming up next, why Buckingham Palace says the Queen will not attend the next part of her Jubilee celebrations tomorrow. Stay with us. In our world lead moments ago, Queen Elizabeth took part in a beacon lighting ceremony at Windsor Castle, part of the Platinum Jubilee celebration, celebrating her 70 years on the throne. But Buckingham Palace announced tonight that the Queen experienced some discomfort during today's celebrations. And as CNN's Max Foster reports for us now, the Queen will now skip tomorrow's main event. A monumental moment in history, one we won't see again in our lifetimes. Queen Elizabeth II marks 70 years of service and just a couple of years away from being the longest reigning monarch in world history. To the awe and joy of thousands of her supporters who came from all corners of the globe to witness this once-in-a-lifetime event. I just love the Queen. She served so selflessly for the last 70 years, dedicated her life to the country. I'm so grateful to her for that. Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, and Kate, Duchess of Cambridge, are the first royals to arrive with the Queen's great-grandchildren. 
closely followed by Princess Anne, Prince William and Prince Charles. The heir to the throne stepping in for the Queen at the parade ground, as he will each time she's unable to attend an event due to her mobility issues. All part of the gradual transition to his monarchy that comes next. Prime Minister Boris Johnson amongst the guests, nicknaming her Elizabeth the Great. Indeed, the Queen of 15 Nations, her jubilee, was also commemorated across the Commonwealth with the lighting of beacons in New Zealand, Fiji and India. But the event was also marked by the absence from the symbolic balcony appearance of Prince Andrew, Prince Harry and Meghan, no longer working royals, and Prince Andrew having contracted Covid. And despite concerns about her state of health, the Queen beamed during the flypass, with her loyal subjects cheering her every move. Turns out the Queen was putting a pretty brave face on things today. She was suffering discomfort throughout the day, we're told by the palace, which is why she's had to cancel a key moment in the Jubilee commemorations tomorrow. That's a service of commemoration for the Queen and her Jubilee at St Paul's Cathedral, a big family moment. Uh, she's unable to make it, Jake. But this is uh, the sign of the times. We're going to see more and more of this pulling out of things because she can't make it. Prince Charles stepping in. Yeah, already a bittersweet Jubilee without her uh, late husband, Max Foster in London. Thank you so much. Coming up, the missteps, the dysfunction, the struggle inside this White House to simply get stuff done. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky now says 20% of his country, 20% is under Russian control. This new assessment of just how expansive the Russian invasion is. Plus, gun rights activists say the solution to bad guys with guns is good guys with guns. But what if those good guys with guns don't do their jobs? Well, then you get Uvalde. And that's far from the only example. And leading this hour, tonight, President Biden will address the nation about guns and gun reform in a rare evening address. The speech was not originally on President Biden's schedule, but White House aides say he had been privately weighing a speech on guns for the last few days. But then a gunman bought a semi-automatic rifle and hours later shot and killed four people at a Tulsa, Oklahoma medical complex, according to police. The Uvalde school shooting was just nine days ago, Buffalo 19 days Tulsa is the 233rd mass shooting this year. I just want to let that number sink in for a moment. 233 mass shootings as defined as four or more victims. 233. June 2nd, that's today. It's only the 153rd day of the year. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House with a preview of the president's surprise address on this uniquely American crisis. Good evening, fellow Americans. President Biden preparing a major address to the nation on gun violence, his second speech on the national epidemic in 10 days. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? The nation still reeling from the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that killed 19 children and two adults, shaken by yet another mass shooting at a hospital complex in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yesterday that left four people dead. They found the first victim, they found the next victim. In his evening address, Biden planning to again call on Congress to take action as lawmakers try to hammer out a bipartisan framework on gun reforms. 
But so far, Biden wary of indicating too much optimism. Are you confident Congress will take action on gun legislation, sir? I served in Congress for, Congress for 36 years. I'm never confident. Totally. <laughs> it depends. And I don't know. I've not been on the negotiations that are going on right now. During his visit to Uvalde over the weekend, the president hearing anguish pleas, asking for change in Washington. Earlier in the month, the president had traveled to Buffalo, New York, the site of another mass shooting that left 10 dead at a local supermarket. The shooter targeting the black community. I promise you, hate will not prevail and white supremacy will not have the last word. For the evil did come to Buffalo. It's come to all too many places. Manifest in gunmen who massacred innocent people. The White House saying additional executive actions are possible, but that the urgency now lies with Congress. The president has directed his staff to continue to explore additional actions we can take, but we can't do this alone, and it's time for Congress to act. Jake, the president himself has been clear that he has not gotten involved yet in these congressional discussions on what to do about gun reform. Uh, we don't know whether he's going to have some must-haves, uh, whether there are going to be red lines in this eventual package if one comes together. Interestingly, though, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre just told reporters that some of these things, like expanding background checks, like banning assault weapons, that they are popular ideas and that they, quote, should be easy. I'm willing to bet you many lawmakers you ask on Capitol Hill, they don't see these issues as being anything but easy. Yeah, MJ Lee at the White House, thank you so much. Things didn't seem so easy on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Bipartisan negotiations continue to take place right now among senators, with Democrats saying it will be tough to reach a deal with Republicans. CNN's Manu Raju joins us now live from Capitol Hill. Manu, where do these bipartisan talks on gun reforms in the Senate, where do they stand? Well, they're still ongoing, and there is still some optimism that there could be a deal reached, but also a reality about how difficult it will be to cut a deal with Republicans. Democrats are already signaling they're not going to go as far as they would like. The Democrats in the Senate are not planning to push forward with an assault weapons ban to get rid of the AR-15s. They're also discussing narrowing a, a, an expansion of background checks. They had initially proposed expanding background checks on commercial sales. There's a discussion about narrowing that. And also there's discussion about possibly in this bipartisan negotiation, not including raising the age of purchasing those, uh, those semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21 amid Republican opposition. Now, I talked to the, one of the leaders in the negotiations, Chris Murphy, who's not willing to concede that last point that they won't be able to raise the age, but also said, I'm certainly prepared for failure. This is a, a negotiation that is fraught with problems, political problems, but he did express some opposition optimism, but said that next week, Jake, will be the critical week as senators come back. They discuss what they can do and see if they can get the 60 votes needed to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. Manu, House Democrats uh, are pursuing wide-ranging gun legislation that probably has no chance of getting the 60 votes necessary uh, in order to bring legislation up for a vote. 
What are they saying about why they're doing that? Yeah, this bill that is about to be approved tonight by the House Judiciary Committee would deal with the banning high-capacity magazines, would also raise that age from 18 to 21 of those semi-automatic rifles. But they say that they are not going to wait for the Senate, even as they passed two bills last year to expand background checks in the House that have not gotten action yet in the Senate. The Democrats who are pushing these measures in the House say they're still moving ahead. Why move forward with something like this that has no chance of becoming law? Well, first of all, I, I dispute that. Look, the American How people How do you dispute are, You know that. No, you know the, the reality. We are demanding that, that Congress take action to reduce gun violence in this country. And if the measure was we're going to only pass bills that we had confidence the Senate would pass, we could go home because we have dozens of bills that are sitting in the Senate awaiting action. Our responsibility in the House is to respond to the urgency of this crisis. And, Jake, the differing approaches will continue next week when House Democrats plan to try to move forward the bill to set a national law dealing with the so-called red flags in order to allow authorities to take away guns from individuals who are deemed as a risk. The Demo- the, on the Senate side, they're looking at incentivizing states to go that route. Still no deal in the Senate, but Democrats in the House have a different approach. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks. Let's talk to one of those Democrats in the House, Mondaire Jones of New York. He's a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Congressman, good to see you as always. So your committee's attempting to advance new gun restrictions today. Some of what is included in the package includes uh, raising the age to purchase a semi-automatic centerfile rifle from 18 to 21, uh, restricting the purchase and manufacturing of large capacity magazines, creating new federal offenses for gun trafficking, and banning the sale of new bump stocks for civilian use. How will these measures prevent the mass shootings taking place across the country? Jake, we will pass that legislation tonight. Uh, And this is broadly supported by the American people. There's no reason, there's no good reason why we haven't done it already, other than the obstruction from my Republican colleagues. Uh, And it's something that we have to move forward with. As Mr. Cicilline said, we've got to make sure that we are doing our job here in the House of Representatives, even as sometimes the Senate appears not to understand what what its responsibility is to the American people. Florida Republican Congressman Greg Stubbe used his time during uh, the committee markup today to display an array of handguns and magazines that he, he says would be banned by, legisla- by this legislation. Let's take a look. Right here in front of me, I have a Sig Sauer P226. Comes with a 21-round magazine. This gun would be banned. Here's a 12-round here's a magazine. This magazine would be banned under this current bill. Here's a gun I carry every single day to protect myself, my family, my wife, my home. This gun would be banned. Is he right? Would, would all of those handguns and magazines be banned? And in your view, should they be? Look, uh, we are banning high capacity magazines according to the legislation that we are passing today. Uh, Mr. Stubbe appears not to have read the legislation that he was opining on. Uh, that is not a, a new kind of behavior from my Republican colleagues. I mean, they cast any number of aspersions and make any number of false claims in order to defeat, in furtherance of the NRA's agenda, common sense legislation that would actually end gun violence in this country. And of course, we need to go further, Jake. We need to make sure we're passing legislation to ban assault weapons. There is no good reason for civilians to have weapons of war. So when you say high capacity magazines, how many how many magazines is that? Look, I mean, magazines to the tune of uh, the kind that have caused so much carnage in such a short period of time. There is legislation underway 
that would do nothing to ban individuals from owning firearms, handguns, in the way that the Supreme Court has interpreted the Second Amendment to allow in a decision called D.C. v. Heller in 2008. And so Mr. Stubbe is just wrong on the facts. And the other thing is, if they've got a question about the constitutionality of some of this legislation, which I don't believe they actually do, they can litigate it before the Supreme Court. But our responsibility here in the United States House of Representatives is to pass common sense legislation that we know will end gun violence in this country. You know, Jake, I was, I was 11 years old when Columbine happened. And I never imagined that somehow, someday, mass shootings in this country, including at schools, would become the norm. That is unconscionable. And as you mentioned earlier, it is a uniquely American problem. No other country has this problem. And we have got to solve it. I'm never going to stop fighting for New Yorkers and for Americans writ large because we do not have to live this way. Senate Majority, uh, I'm sorry, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell says the actual problem causing mass shootings is mental illness and school safety. Texas Senator John Cornyn, who's one of the leading Senate negotiators in these bipartisan talks, tweeted that when it comes to making gun laws more restrictive, it's, quote, not going to happen Uh, Would you be satisfied with legislation that does not restrict gun access in any way? I would not be satisfied with that kind of legislation, but I would still vote for anything that would have the effect of reducing gun violence in this country, even as I push to have up or down votes on everything that we are considering today and more, including a ban on assault weapons and the imposition of liability on distributors, manufacturers, and retailers that are negligently marketing their products to people who have no business possessing firearms in this country. Congressman Mondaire Jones, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. It was one of the key lessons of Columbine. Police cannot wait. You can't wait to go inside during a mass shooting. So why does it keep happening? And coming up, the case that helped set the stage for abortion rights in America and the popular podcast exploring what life was like before Roe v. Wade. Stay with us. In our national lead, as calls grow for legislation to address the the crisis of gun violence in America, gun rights advocates are are turning to a familiar line. Ultimately, as we all know, what stops armed bad guys is armed good guys. Armed good guys. That was Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz at last week's NRA meeting in Houston. Armed good guys. That isn't what happened in Uvalde, Texas. 19 armed police officers, instead of confronting one single gunman at Robb Elementary School, stood outside the classroom as he killed 19 children and two teachers. Even more good guys with guns stood outside the school and did not go in. Law enforcement experts have called that decision a failure with catastrophic consequences, and it was hardly the first time. A parent's worst nightmare playing out in real time. Children being killed, calling 911, crying for help with the gunman just feet away. Their moms and dads prevented from running in, desperately turning to the police, begging them to do something, do anything. This is a failure at every level. But officers waiting an hour before going in, listening to the gunshots, but doing nothing. 19 children and two teachers killed. They forgot why they put on the badge and what they were trained to do. But this is not the first time. Last week's shooting has renewed scrutiny of law enforcement's response to these mass shootings, or sometimes lack of response. 
the school resource officer was behind a stairwell wall, just standing there, and he had his gun drawn. Take one of the most infamous examples, the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, that left 14 students and three adults dead. He was pointing his gun at nothing. He was pointing his gun at just a building with kids in it, and he was just talking on the radio, and he never did anything for four minutes. The armed deputy and school resource officer, Scott Peterson, stood outside for four minutes after hearing gunshots in the school. He never went in. Four minutes is a lot of time for someone armed with this type of weapon and magazines to kill people. And to hold and do nothing for four minutes, absent an order from the chain of command to do so, uh, is unthinkable. And he was not the only one to wait. A source from Coral Springs Police Department told CNN when their officers showed up at the scene, three Broward County Sheriff's deputies were outside the school as the shooting was underway. Then there was the 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre, one of the deadliest mass shootings in American history with 49 people killed. A federal lawsuit alleges an Orlando police officer was on the scene to provide security for the club, but instead he abandoned his post, thereby allowing the shooter to not only enter the club once to scout out the area and make sure nobody could stop him, but to then leave Pulse, retrieve his firearms, and return to execute his sinister plan to kill people. That lawsuit also names more than 30 Orlando police officers claiming they stayed outside during the shooting or held witnesses against their will after they ran away from the scene. Experts say there's no good reason why these officers should not be doing more in these situations. There is a general agreement in law enforcement, and there has been since Columbine, that we, we take immediate action. Immediate actions. That was the key takeaway from analysis of the 1999 Columbine High School massacre that killed 20 and stunned the world. Police departments nationwide were trained on how to respond to these mass shootings and how to intervene quickly. We trained our officers to um, respond to these situations um, over and over and over again. Another point some experts argue is the police hesitation we've seen to confront a gunman armed with AR-15 style semi-automatic weapons as proof that police unions were right in the 1990s when they supported banning some of these kinds of weapons so they would not be outgunned. That's a ban that expired in 2004. Fortunately, there have been examples of strong responses by police, such as in the 2015 shooting in San Bernardino. A federal review praised law enforcement's handling of that terrorist attack there, noting that in spite of the first officers on the scene being underarmed and without body armor, they still channeled their training to immediately run into danger to save lives. And that, quote, many of the decisions made by organizational leaders and steps taken by responders to prepare for, respond to, and recover from the incident can set an example for other organizations as they plan to protect their communities against a similar type of attack. That does not seem to be an example taken by officers in Uvalde, Texas, despite having been trained in this. And now that community mourns, left to wonder, what if police had acted sooner? Had they gotten there sooner and, and somebody would have taken immediate action, uh, we might have more of those children here today, including my daughter. And it does sound as though the police in Tulsa responded immediately. A very difficult job. Coming up next, trying times and serious issues piling on. Why does this White House seem to be struggling just to keep its head above water? Stay with us.
In our politics lead, the White House struggling. The Biden administration being hit by a hurricane of crises, rising inflation, a formula shortage, gun violence, an ongoing pandemic. CNN senior politics reporter Edward Isaac DeVere writing today, quote, Biden can't see a way to address that while also being the looser, happier, more sympathetic, lovingly onion parody inspiring aviator wearing vanilla chip cone licking guy. He has to speak to very serious things, explained one White House aide. And you can't do that getting ice cream. Let's discuss with my panel. Sarah, do you, do you buy this excuse that the problem is that he, he can't be this avuncular, lovable Uncle Joe and also take on these serious issues? No. Uh, I actually think the issue is that you can't combat people's lived experiences with messaging, especially the messaging from this White House. I mean, the fact is, I do focus groups all the time, almost every week. Opening question, how do you think things are going in the country? The answer, left, right, and center, not well, bad, inflation. Things don't work as well as I want them to. My flights are getting canceled. I can't get the things that I want to, you know, supply chain's broken. And when you're up against that, um, that's just, you can't, you can't give a speech and tell people their life isn't how they're experiencing it. COVID is still rampant. Like, that's the central problem. Yeah, and, and, and Paul, the White House, like every White House before it, is consistent that this is just a messaging program <laughs> problem. It's, it's not just a messaging problem. I mean, President Biden can go out and talk about the low unemployment rate, and that's true and it's accurate. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, gas. every day I come on the show and talk about how gas prices are a new record high today. Every day I, I do that. So you go to the doc and you say, my shoulder's killing me. And she says, yeah, but your knees are great. Mm. She's not a good doc. Right. You're not going to make you happy with your doctor. So they tried denial. Sarah's right. One hundred percent right. But I think this week they pivoted off of that. I thought the op ed he did in The Wall Street Journal was quite good because it seemed to me he's a Democrat's need. Maybe I'm being too hopeful here. And a three part strategy on this, which is first, I feel your pain. Not things are better. But yeah, by God, they are terrible. And I'm with you. So empathy first. I feel your pain. Then I can heal your pain. Here's how. Here's my plan. But then also the thing he hates doing is. The other guys are going to worsen your pain. And he, he, he touched on that in the op-ed. He said, Rick Scott, the Republican leader of the Senate Campaign Committee, has a plan to raise taxes on 75 million working and poor Americans and sunset Social Security and Medicare. Boy, I can run on that. Yeah. But that's not, but, Sarah's right. When you tell people that they're wrong about how they're living their lives, they get angry. But Gloria, listen, right. listen to President Biden talking about the problems that he says he can't fix. But the idea we're going to be able to, you know, click a switch bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. Did the CEOs just tell you that they understood it would have a very big impact? They did, but I didn't. I can't outlaw a weapon. I can't, you know, change the background check. I can't do that. So that's the president talking about prices too high, uh, the infant formula shortage, uh, and how he can't outlaw a weapon. That's, it's a lot of I can't. Yeah, and it's a lot of your president of the United States, and maybe you can't do everything, but as president, you don't want to tell the American public what you can't do. You want to tell the American public what you are trying to do, and maybe it's those Republicans who are keeping you from doing it. And by the way, you need to have a united party behind you coming out and saying, this is what we are trying to do, and guess who's stopping us from doing it? This is the reason we have X, Y, and Z. I think the president needs to kind of not only clear up his message because he has real problems 
It's not the message. But they need to have a party that can figure out what it wants to talk about heading into the election and how they can convince the American public that they actually have done a pretty good job. Look at unemployment numbers, for example. One aspect that makes this challenging as well beyond messaging is also that just some of the responses, some of the solutions to these issues are hard to digest and also take a while. Uh, A good example is um, when you when it comes to inflation or supply chain shortages. I was just on the trip to South Korea and Japan with the president, and he visits a Samsung factory. He talks about how semiconductors, this plant is building semiconductors. I have a bill in Congress that will, uh, you know, ramp up that production, and that eventually will help with some of these economic issues that you're feeling now. It is hard for people to digest that, that you are going across the world to provide a relief to their economic pain when they're struggling to still get baby formula back in the country. So also, when you have the president saying, look, some of these responses and solutions will take a while and essentially asking people to be patient when there's a struggle to get basic necessities, that's also going to be a challenge. And Sarah, I want to, uh, there's been a discussion here about how the idea that the Republicans don't have any better ideas or, or even they have worse ideas. Take a listen to the economic advisor, um, of the White House, uh, Jared Bernstein, talking today uh, with uh, Jim Shudo. We just haven't heard really any mm-hmm. cogent ideas from the other side when it comes to helping with inflation. We've seen lots of uh, uh, lots lots of complaining and 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 uh, almost no policy. It's not a it's not an inaccurate criticism, really. But does it matter? No. When you're the party in power, you're <laughs> right. the party in power. Like that's all that matters. And no. Republicans. Yeah, Republicans know how to run this game. This is why Mitch McConnell says, I'm not putting out a platform. I'm not telling you what I think. They want to run. They want to make Biden run on this record, on the high gas prices, on inflation. And that may f- be unfair, but it is it's politics. And let's talk about um, let's talk about guns, because Democrats and Republicans seem to have different focuses when they're trying to talk about passing gun reform or doing something to help this uh, spate of mass shootings. Take a listen to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Judiciary Committee Jerry Nadler, a Republican and a Democrat. Discussing how we might be able to come together to target the problem, which is mental illness and school safety. There's mental health issues, but there are mental health issues in every country. Don't tell me that the Americans are thousands of times more mentally ill than people in other countries. Gloria, do you think the parties are going to be able to come together to pass any sort of... Like, it's you know, not fair to, it's, to have it's, Nadler and McConnell as the right. ones, because so you, you just need 10 Republicans, really, but That's in the right. Senate. And, but, and everybody can agree, to a certain extent, you want to deal with the mental illness component, but let's not overstate it. I mean, you look at all kinds of studies, and they will say it's 5 to 10% of, of people who do mass shootings uh, have been diagnosed with some mental illness uh, issues beforehand. So they have to get to the heart of the matter. And they have to figure out, are you going to do something with universal background checks, red flag laws, whatever, to what extent? And I think that's that's really the issue here, which is to what extent are Republicans willing to say, we're going to do universal background checks, but they're going to be stronger than the ones uh, Republicans have signed on to in the past. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there's not going to be anything. You have heard Democrats, though, including Senator Murphy, who's out in front of this and taking yeah. the lead in these negotiations, say that they are open to some more modest uh, uh, changes here as well. Um, what will be interesting is you have now the president that's going to give this speech later on tonight. Will he now come out and support for something that's more modest, maybe even more incremental, if it does mean compromise and showing the American people 
that the Senate is capable of change? Or will he say, look, I demand we need actually strong policy change here to prevent another thing for those, uh, that for prevent another one of these attacks happening. Those two aren't mutually exclusive, but yeah. it will be interesting to hear what he says. Here. Thanks one and all for being here. I appreciate it. The hidden way the United States is helping Ukraine defend itself from Russia. That's coming up. In our worldly, 20% of the entire country of Ukraine is under Russian control. 20%, according to President Volodymyr Zelensky earlier today. Zelensky says the area controlled by Putin's forces is equivalent to more than 48,000 square miles. That's an area the size of Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg combined. Let's get right to CNN's Matthew Chance. Matthew, a Ukrainian military official, says they have no immediate plans for withdrawing troops from Severodonetsk. Does that mean Ukraine is still holding out hope of retaining control of that key city? Um, I, I don't think it means they hope they can control it, but it certainly means that there are, they're going to fight, you know, street to street to make it as painful as possible for the Russians to declare a full, proper victory there. Um, and in fact, over the past couple of minutes, President Zelensky has said that their forces, Ukrainian forces in Severodonetsk, have had some success. Now, that doesn't mean they're winning this. They're not. But they are, you know, really bleeding the Russians in that town. Um, It's an important town for the Russians because it's the last big city in the Luhansk region. And so when it finally falls, the Russians can declare that as a big political win. But the more military equipment that, that Moscow has to pour into it, the less able it is to defend other areas that it's occupied elsewhere in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian forces are trying to take advantage of that. They say that they've, they've launched counteroffensives in the south of the country, which are bringing more and more villages and settlements back under Ukrainian control and pushing the Russians away elsewhere. So, you know, because of this big battle that's taking place in Severodonetsk, it's opened up the possibility of counteroffensives, counterattacks elsewhere. So Russian state media reports that more than 1.6 million, 1.6 million people have crossed into Russia from Ukraine. And that includes more than 260,000 children. What do we know about these people? Is that number accurate? Are they going willingly? Yeah, well, that's the that's the question. Um, Look, I mean, if you speak to the Russians about it, they say, look, we've given sanctuary to one point six million people. We've we've saved them. We've um, evacuated them from this this war zone and brought them to the safety of Russia. Um, And they're they're spinning it as a positive. But of course, you know, on the Ukrainian side, it's, it's the opposite. They're saying they're basically forcibly deporting these people to force these Ukrainians to go and live in camps across Russia, including more than 200,000 children. And President Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, has been you know, talking about this over the past couple of days, how tragic it is and awful it is that so many hundreds of thousands of people and of children particularly are being taken out of their homeland and resettled um, elsewhere in Russia as if Ukraine didn't even exist. And so they're trying to be made to forget about their country. Um, and so it's one of the big tragedies of this uh, of this conflict so far. The enormous loss of people on the Ukrainian side. You've seen five million people, um, some of them to Russia, but others, five million people in total have left the country and settled uh, elsewhere. So it's a big loss for the country. Matthew Chanson, Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Turning to our tech lead now, the U.S. military's hacking unit 
confirmed that they conducted cyber operations against Russia in support of Ukraine. This is a rare public acknowledgement from U.S. military officials that is often, almost always, shrouded in secrecy. Let's get right to CNN's Alex Marquardt, who's bringing us the story. Alex, what exactly is offensive cyber operations, and does this cross the line in the U.S. directly engaging in war with Russia. Well, that line was very clearly laid down by President Biden saying that he did not want U.S. troops inside Ukraine to be fighting against Russian troops. Now, are U.S. forces engaging with Russian forces in cyberspace? Yes, they are. The White House is saying, uh, arguing that that does not cross the line, that does not break the pledge. But here we have a U.S. four-star general, General Paul Nakasone, who's in charge of the NSA, and U.S. Cyber Command saying that they have carried out offensive operations in defense of Ukraine. He told Sky News that these U.S. operations run the gamut, offensive, defensive, uh, as well as information. Now, we don't know what the targets are. General Nakasone almost never talks about these offensive operations, which is why we're taking note now. One major question, Jake, is going to be whether these targets were inside Russia Did they target Russian infrastructure inside Russia, which would be a a very big deal? Um, Or were they going after, say, Russian targets inside Ukraine? Uh, Communications that the Russians are using, uh, that the Russian military is using. Uh, Are they targeting Russian soldiers with information campaigns? These are the questions um, that we have right now that we likely will not get very clear answers to. But it is very clear that U.S. Cyber Command is working hand in glove with the Ukrainians both before uh, and during this war. And the FBI is now warning uh, that as this war goes, goes on, Russia could uh, use uh, cyber capabilities to attack the United States. There have been repeated warnings since the beginning of this war that Russia could carry out significant cyber attacks against the United States. That, for a large part, has not happened. A senior U.S. defense intelligence official spoke with our colleagues, Katie Bolillis and Sean Lingus, and said uh, that that could be because they fear the repercussions. They fear the response by the United States that could target Russia and their efforts in Ukraine. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the FBI Director Chris Ray did warn just yesterday that as this war progresses, progresses and as it goes badly for Russia, that they could carry out, he said, more destructive attacks uh, against the United States. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A popular podcast with past seasons on Biggie and Tupac, the L.A. riots, the Iraq war, This time tackles the Supreme Court in its monumental Roe v. Wade abortion rights case. I'm going to speak with the show's host. Stay with us. In the health lead today, the final month of the Supreme Court's term is upon us, which means a decision to overturn Roe v. Wade could come at any time. So what would the United States look like if abortion was no longer considered a constitutionally protected right? Well, the new season of the hit podcast, Slow Burn, wants to bring Americans back to the days before Roe. In fact, the first episode tells the story of Shirley Wheeler, who was the first woman in the U.S. to be convicted of manslaughter for receiving an abortion in 1971 at 23 weeks. Listen. During the time that she was in jail, the cops came into her cell, showed her pictures of a fetus, said, how can you deny having abortion? Here's your baby. Look at it. This is your baby. She was pretty near hysterical at that point. Manslaughter in Florida carries up to a 20-year penalty. I sat down with Susan Matthews earlier this week. She's the host of this season of Slate's podcast, Slow Burn, and is also the news director for Slate. 
Susan, thanks so much for joining us. I'm a huge fan of Slow Burn, as you know. Um, what made you want to start this season with the story of Shirley Wheeler? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me, Jake. So I had heard about Shirley Wheeler's story like very briefly. I honestly had read about it on Wikipedia in like two sentences. And I had just never seen the full story. And so when I started looking into it, I learned so much more about her that made me really want to start the season with with her story. And one of those things is that she had a really hard life leading up to what happened with this prosecution. She had a, a baby and she had health problems afterwards, which is why she really couldn't continue with the pregnancy. But the other thing that I learned about Shirley that really made me compelled by her story is that even after all of those things happened to her that you just heard in that clip, she refused to to tell. She didn't cooperate with the cops. She wouldn't tell um, them who had given her the abortion. And I thought that that was really strong and really powerful. Interesting. So the podcast take us back to pre-Roe v. Wade America, to, to a time uh, where you describe what women went through back in the 60s, women and girls, uh, to be able to, to get an abortion in states where it was illegal. Take a listen. Pat had been referred to a nurse who performed the procedure in a dark apartment. As far as Pat knew, the woman put a clamp on her uterus. She was then sent home to miscarry. I went to the bathroom, you know, bleeding and, and the embryo expelled in, in some way. All, you know, really hush-hush, not having certainly told my father who I was living with and having to be really quiet about, you know, the pain I was experiencing. It's, it's really uh, quite riveting and horrifying women going through this and, and having to keep quiet about their pain in their own home. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me about this is that normally when you go to a hospital and get a medical procedure, you're told what to expect. You're told to call if anything unusual happens. And in these scenarios, this is what happened with Shirley, too. After they went through the procedure, they had abnormal amounts of bleeding. It was up to them to judge what was what was normal, what was not. That's how so many women died, by, by bleeding out. And it was up to them to decide when to go to the hospital, when to risk going to the hospital. And you have to think about if you're going to get in trouble for doing all of that along the way, which I think is is just really scary to think about. Yeah, I mean, I, this is one of the, the arguments that abortion rights advocates make, which is banning abortion doesn't end abortion. It mm-hmm. just drives women and girls into places that are less safe and conditions uh, that are dangerous. Um, and, and it wasn't just women, of course, who had to get an abortion. And secret abortion providers uh, were terrified of getting caught. Take a listen. Abortion providers took all kinds of precautions to protect themselves from arrest and prosecution. Often, patients wouldn't know their names or even see them. Women would be told to wait on a street corner to be picked up and then be blindfolded once they got in the car. So when you look at the laws that are being passed uh, in Oklahoma and Mississippi and Texas and elsewhere, do you think that the past is prologue, that this is what is going to happen? I think that there are some important differences that we need to acknowledge, and one of those is medication abortion, which women didn't have access to in this time. But I also think that there are a lot of similarities. And even when you think about you know, medication abortion, you have to have the knowledge to know how to find that. And in so many of these stories, what I found, particularly with Shirley, is that when women are young, when they're lower income, 
when they're alone, they don't have the information. And so I think that even with some of the differences between then and now, you definitely see that there are going to be a lot of similarities of women taking this into their own hands, trusting people that they might not necessarily need to trust. And so I definitely think that there's a lot in this season that we're going to learn from that is something that if what we expect is going to happen with the Supreme Court goes through, uh, that that's going to be something that we're going to be talking about in the months to come. You were working on this series before the that document leaked. Um, yes. And it, it was actually when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed and you just did the math that, that you got to work, right? Yeah, basically, uh, I've been covering jurisprudence for Slate for a long time. I, I usually work as an editor. And we basically knew when that happened that, that there were the votes to overturn Roe. And so we started thinking about how we wanted to cover that. And for a long time, we've thought about the fact that when they did overturn Roe, they weren't going to be so explicit about it that they were going to say, you know, oh, well, we're just moving it back to 15 weeks or something like that. And I think that what happened with this leak, which happened in May, I mean, I wasn't expecting the leak at all. Um, And with the leak, what you really see is that they are being really explicit about what they want to do. So in some ways, I think that it has helped bring attention to this issue because for such a long time, the way that it's talked about is a little bit like, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. With with that opinion from from Sam Alito, I mean, it's really he's really explicit that Roe was incorrectly decided. He's really explicit about just how far back they want to go. So we're waiting to see what exactly is going to happen in the final opinion. But when I saw that, I kind of felt like, well, at least they're they're saying what they're doing now in a way that that's the thing that I hadn't anticipated. But I think that anyone who had heard the arguments in Dobbs knew that the votes are there to overturn Roe. Yeah, indeed. The podcast is Slow Burn from Slate. Susan Matthews, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Finally, the White House says COVID vaccines for kids under five could be available as soon as June 21st. The FDA Advisory Committee is expected to review data submitted by Pfizer and Moderna next week after the FDA signs off. It will be left to the CDC to make its recommendation, and then doses can be shipped to pediatricians nationwide. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.